0: Welcome to Uncommons. I'm your host, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. On this episode, I'm joined by my liberal colleague, Hetty Fry. She's represented Vancouver Center for 27 years, winning nine elections in a row. And before that, she worked as a doctor for over two decades in St. Paul's Hospital. Hetty, thanks for joining me. You're my first liberal guest, by the way. I spoke to Charlie Angus and I spoke to Elizabeth May. And then I thought, Who's the liberal that, I don't know, speaks to what is happening today, but also speaks to experience from before? And I couldn't think of a better first liberal guest than you.
1: Well, gee, thank you. Thanks, Nathaniel. I'm pleased to be on your podcast.
0: Your health background, it's a very interesting place to be where you've been a, a minister and now we have a health crisis on our hands. And I wonder if you can speak to the government's response today and with the health background you have to see where the priorities should be on a going forward basis.
1: Well, I think that the government is actually doing the right thing in terms of the health response. Because for me, the health response is probably the single most important one. Because if we can flatten that curve of of contagion and spread, then we can get back to normal. If we don't do that, we will continue to have all of these benefits, to help people who are off work, to help you know, help businesses, to do all of that. And that will continue on for as long as we're still on a steep curve. So the first order of business is to make sure that we get that. But I think what we're doing is the appropriate thing because we're doing both of them parallel. I mean, I have constituents who continue to tell me that they're terrified. That they're going to get kicked out of their homes and i think the bc government i uh, wrote to selena robinson who is the minister for housing and they responded by actually putting a moratorium on any evictions at all for uh, residents so that worked out with that now i think that and i'm working with the provincial government on because it's their jurisdiction i'm looking at commercial evictions because if you don't have businesses coming back, there are going to be no jobs, and we're still going to be in a pickle.
0: It's interesting just how many knock-on consequences there are, now that the economy's at a standstill, largely, for small business owners, for nonprofits, small, big, and there are so many problems that, that arise as a result, so we have to stay focused on the health response. It's only the health response that gets us out of this.
1: Well, here's a unique problem. I got a call from the Vancouver Aquarium, which is ocean-wise, it's one of the largest aquariums in the world and does a lot of research, et cetera. And I got a call from them because they're in my writing and they were saying that they have a problem. And this is where we find that now what we're doing is we're seeing unique instances, businesses that are very, very different. Like they have to feed 70,000 creatures a day. Now, when they don't have a gate and when they are shut down, they don't have money to feed those creatures. And they also need to have trained Health personnel for animals and, and trained people who know how, to, how the animals, uh, what their needs are. Um, and so they need to rehire those people to keep these animals fed. And I want to tell you that it's a good news story because I called up and sent that message up the food chain to um, the, the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans, and they're already working with the aquarium to look at that issue because there are these things that we don't even think about, you know? But back to the health issue. So I think we're doing the right thing. I mean, basically, you know, epidemiology 101 is finding out what the, what the cause of the problem is. In this case, we found out it was a, a coronavirus uh, that we call COVID-19. Secondly, we need to then, once we found it out, we need to find out how it spread, how it works, and what it causes. So this is how what we know about COVID. So now knowing that, we have to then say, well, what do we do? to stop people from getting it. So everyone is doing the thing, social distancing, isolation, et cetera, et cetera. What concerns me are all these seniors' homes that are being affected. And I think that I, that's a provincial jurisdiction, I know, and I I don't want to land on anybody really hard, but I think we should be setting up clear protocols for how things work in those homes.
0: You You couldn't have nailed it more on the head from the conversations I've had. I just spoke to Sarah Downey, the CEO of my local hospital, We've seen seven deaths now, as of today, in a local uh, long-term care facility. And so if we don't have stronger, stricter, and clearer protocols for long-term care facilities, we're going to see more tragedy.
1: Yeah, I I, I personally um, come from the school of thought that says it shouldn't be voluntary, it should be mandatory. That's what a protocol is. A guideline is voluntary, a protocol is mandatory. I think we need mandatory protocols. And I think simple things that we don't think about. You take a healthcare worker who is working out of two seniors' long-term care, does the mornings in place A and the afternoons in place B, does two shifts, et cetera. And we're not just talking about nurses and doctors and nurses' aides. We're talking about the people who feed seniors who are in assisted living. We're talking about the people who cook their food. We're talking about people who clean the floors. All of these people are considered to be essential workers. And the problem is if they just come from home or come from the other facility, come straight in, you know, walk in and start doing their stuff, what they're bringing is whatever they got, they have on their clothing and et cetera, or even, you know, on their hands, et cetera, if they don't wash them properly, we need, that's coming in, that's cross-infecting. So, you know, in some places, and I know in many hospitals uh, and emergency rooms and in ICUs, what they do is they actually change out of their street clothes in a separate place. For now, the point is we don't have a choice in that. We can help with personal protective equipment. We can help on all that as a federal government. But these are provincial jurisdictions and provinces need to lock down on some protocols for, for the seniors.
0: And on that point, do you find these are more informal conversations with with provincial health ministers? Or at this point, there's a you're looking at a round table of provincial health ministers?
1: I mean, around the cabinet table, I used to get Fully involved in health issues, right? I would just tell the health minister and what everybody what I think. But it was a good place because, you know, under Jean Chrétien, we were allowed to tell each other what we think and to make a big debate about this. Maybe federal-provincial jurisdictions need to take a different uh, a, a, a different role. We need to play a different role as a federal government, and and that needs. But that can only come with the agreement of the provinces because we can't impose unless. We bring in the emergency um, act, and and to bring in uh, that kind of the emergency measures act is pretty uh, pretty strong stuff. I know my province in British Columbia is uh, to be very honest, even though they're a different political stripe, they have been very good to work with. I talk to some of their ministers regularly, and and they find us easy to work with, and and they're e- easy to work with. And I think that there may very well be that sort of feeling that if the federal government is going to actually take a step and impose things, and of course, you heard the provinces telling the prime minister, they don't think we should bring in the emergency measures act. So uh, that's that's where it is. And that's as it is. And I think talking to each other, I don't think it's it's as informal as as you think it is. I think it's probably more formalized in terms of real meetings with what are you doing, what are your databases, what's happening, what are you having most problems with, and, and kind of an exchange of, of, of ideas at the moment.
0: And there is an advantage in the, at, at some point, uh, we do want best practices to rise up, but there is a, a, some value, at least in the federal model, in a case like this, where we see different provinces respond in different ways, and hopefully, in the end, quickly coalesce around what the best practice really is.
1: Yeah, and I think that that is true. I think that's a great point you're making, uh, Nathaniel. We are, uh, find that if we look at best practices, some provinces have been doing great things, like some provinces have been um, testing more randomly. They're not just testing people with symptoms, uh, they're testing in the community randomly because in some provinces they are seeing community spread in other provinces they're not. And so we need to know that kind of random testing. Some provinces are doing it, and they're doing it because they're seeing more community spread than maybe other provinces are. Some provinces are saying it's only in our seniors' homes, and other provinces are saying, wow, it's out there in the community. I know British Columbia has recently done something that I think is interesting, because we're one of the four provinces which has a major international airline hub, and that's YVR, Vancouver Airport. Uh, they have begun to roll out that kind of testing of people coming off a plane. And so again, that's, uh, you just go back into the federal provincial thing. Provinces have different, different things that are rising up in this pandemic. They've got different groups of people that are more at risk than other groups of people. And I think that that segues you and I into Vancouver, which has a huge vulnerable population with ground zero in the opioid crisis. And these people still are homeless. And I think that our government has now put in a fairly large sum of the money, I think it's $150 million into homeless, homelessness. And a lot of municipalities, like I know the city of Vancouver mayor, um, has opened up community centers that are locked down and closed off and put in beds there and giving the homeless people a place to come and gather and live where they can be tested and they can be seen and they can be taken care of. So he's done that with two large community centers so far. And that's what the BC government is doing now. But an interesting thing um, is you know how I feel. I believe that decriminalization is a kind of like a red herring. Decriminalization in terms of looking at opioids and other drugs is about helping the person who's using not to be given a fine or be thrown into jail or be given a criminal weapon. It doesn't do a single thing about the people out there who are selling drugs. They still need to get their drugs because, as we know, addiction is a a chronic problem. It's 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 a, it's a chronic problem. It's not a it's it's a, it's we you know it's got to do with the dopamine and all that stuff in the brain. It's not a a willpower or moral issue it is a real problem and we need to deal with it as, as an illness and so that's what people are doing here the point is that um you know if we decrim we're just letting the people who are using not go to jail and not get a record but the people who are who are selling them the drugs are still out there selling them the drugs
0: there's no question it's a it's a half measure you know when we were talking about potentially there was a motion in the house to decriminalize cannabis on the road to legalization, I think it was, it was obvious that legalization regulation of cannabis is the right answer. You know, when even when people were getting asked the question, pre-legalization, almost fifty percent of Canadians were self-reporting that they'd used it in their lifetime. C- certainly, fifty percent of Canadians are not criminals, so the answer of legalization was obvious. And and obviously, it's less harmful than alcohol, so it's it's a different regulatory environment than than other more harmful substances. But at the time, I thought decriminalization is a half measure. But surely a half measure is better than no measure, and so I, I share your skepticism that decriminalization is a silver bullet. I do think that, although it seems to be such a political challenge, and I, you know, God knows why, because you know, surely we can all agree that we ought not to be sending people with substance use issues to jail. But it would encourage people to seek treatment at a minimum. Now, I do think you're you're probably right that it doesn't solve the problem of a toxic drug supply. It doesn't solve the problem of the suppliers who are completely unregulated still selling a product that is that is potentially very unsafe, and, and decriminalization doesn't solve any of that.
1: No, and and I think the problem about it, saying a half a measure is better than no measure at all is that sometimes a half measures can create a sense of complacency and safety that isn't real, and that's my concern about it. Uh, people think, oh well, it's decriminalized, everybody's fine, and I don't think a lot of people know. difference between decriminalization and legalization but i think the point about decriminalization and i mean a lot of drug courts are looking at the decriminalization issue etc but i think the the issue here is that it's not merely, and i think a lot of people look at uh at substance use as a sort of moral issue and we know it isn't we know that in it in fact a real a disease problem that needs to be dealt with as a chronic illness and needs to be treated like we would treat any chronic illness.
0: Or there are other recreational substance users that that shouldn't be subject to the criminal law anyway. I mean, I I can't count the number of people I know in my life who have used shrooms or MDMA, and they're not criminals. They're they're upstanding citizens. You know, I I don't know when the last time they used shrooms was, but certainly I, I wouldn't want them to have a criminal penalty imposed and ruin their
1: life. Well, actually, back in, in uh, Christian's government, we had actually allowed for um, a certain amount, uh, say, of cannabis at the time that could be in possession without getting a criminal record. So we kind of effectively almost decriminalized it. I know,
0: you guys were way ahead of it, and then we, 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 we entered the dark years.
1: Yeah, well, we can't even go back to those dark years. It's so dark, I can't even see when I go back to those years. But I think, that here's, here's the thing, I think what people don't get, and a lot of people who, who actually moralize about this issue, they don't realize that it's not just people who are lying in the streets who are homeless who are you know de- de- degraded etc in every single way that this is happening in families with two parents who may have a degree who may be holding down a job who may be a, a solid worker bringing home money to take care of the family and they're using and so they're at risk of dying we begun to see that when the whole fentanyl issue began it exposed that sort of problem that everyone pretended did not happen. And so, therefore, we, needed, we need to do something about it. And I think, once again, because we are ground zero here, and as you well know, Gretchen had given me this role to deal with the opioid crisis in Vancouver.
0: Right, you'd been the leader on safe injection sites here in Canada.
1: I was the federal minister responsible for that particular problem. I sort of did it off the side of my desk uh, with my other portfolio. But I mean, the bottom line is we started, it was an experiment that we were doing. And I think at the end of the day, what one needs to be guided by, whether it's COVID-19 or whether it's an opioid crisis or whatever it is, you need to be guided in medicine by best practices so that we don't have to keep reinventing a wheel. We just try and adapt it. And when we did the safe injection site, it was a research product, project done by the Center of Excellence for HIV AIDS uh, in, in British Columbia. And then, you know, it, it sort of showed us that actually it worked because of people who came into the safe injection site were the very highest risk people who never went to doctors, never went to nurses, never did harm reduction, never did any of those things. And all of a sudden, they were there and they were doing this. And um, and we found that they were in, then in contact with doctors and nurses, and they suddenly decided, hey, I'm not going to have to die. I'm not going to die tomorrow because my best friend, who's 22, died three days ago. I could have hope. And then many of them decided they wanted to detox and they wanted to get out of it. And that's why we created that 25 bed unit above Insight, called on-site so that they were able to go because if somebody wants to to go into treatment or wants to detox, you need it to be done right away. We can't say, I'll put you on a waiting list and six weeks later, I'll find you a bed somewhere. And so this is one of the things that we need to look at when we're talking about helping people.
0: And out of that one project, we, we've, we've seen obviously the Supreme Court defend the the project to say its benefits have been proven. It saves lives. Sorry, Harper government, you can't shut it down in a unanimous decision, which I think is a, is an incredibly important one for then laying groundwork to uh, to see our government expand that model. And certainly without question, it saved lives. At the same time, we see still, even with the, the expansion of safe consumption sites in place, we see over 13, almost 14,000 Canadians have died since early 2016 because of the fentanyl and, and opioid crisis. We see, our life expectancy for the first time in 40 years has stalled and stats can't attribute it to this crisis. So if decriminalization, I agree, is not the silver bullet full answer, I think it would be a useful part of the conversation to make people rethink, to your point about treating substance use as a health issue, to reframe it completely, I think decriminalization conversation is a helpful one. But if that's not the silver bullet, which is not, you with your health background and with your, I think, really strong focus for decades on this problem, what are the suite of measures that, that we ought to be pursuing that you don't think we're, we're pursuing seriously enough?
1: Provide a safe and reliable supply and not by organized crime. Have a safe and reliable supply so people can get clean drugs, cleanly delivered so that they can actually. Because if we treat it like a, an illness, I mean, you've got a diabetic, a type one diabetic, they're taking insulin shots all right because that's what we know will help them so we need to talk about how we can get a safe supply going because that's actually at the end of the day the real answer now if you legalize it i suppose that could happen but you don't have to legalize it to have a safe supply and i'm going to tell you that british Columbia, being ground zero is now doing something very brand new because what the the interesting thing is here we have covid 19 where we are concerned over the tens of thousands of Canadians dying of COVID-19, and yet we have had tens of thousands of Canadians dying from a fentanyl and overdose, and we did not go into overdrive on it like we're doing here. We did not go into making a move to stop it. And that is interesting.
0: It speaks to the moral issue that you identified before, right? That people are dismissive of taking action because they think somehow someone is morally uh, defective and, and lesser than using drugs
1: these are the most vulnerable people still and they are really at high risk of contracting this and passing it on to each other and so what British Columbia has done certain healthcare providers physicians and or nurses are authorized to give prescriptions for opioids to people that are substance users Uh, That's the first thing, which is an important first step. So and what it it also brings in is that privacy. You or I can go to my doctor or to my nurse practitioner, say that I'm a user, say that I, I have been using for a long time, blah, 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 and get the prescription, go and get it filled out. And in British Columbia, we have had something for about 20 years now when I was practicing medicine, it had started. It's called a triplicate prescription. In other words, when a doctor or, or, or someone who is authorized writes a prescription for an narcotic, um, that prescription is one is kept by the actual College of Physicians, the second one is kept by the College of Pharmacists, and the third piece uh, is kept by the family doctor or the doctor or the nurse who's giving it. And then you can track, you, you, you can track how that doctor is giving out those prescriptions. Who is getting the prescriptions? Is that person triple, triple doctoring? In other words, if they come to see me today and to see you at lunchtime and to see Doctor X tonight and and collecting this and doing what? Maybe selling it on the street. We ha- we can keep a tab on that, so we can track data. We can collect information about use and about you know doctors and nurses who are abusing the system themselves by giving them to anybody without tracking it. So there are lots of ways in which which Columbia is probably one of the best places to do that right now.
0: There are such negative knock-on consequences to this pandemic where services have shut down, necessary social infrastructure has shut down. So we're starting to see the federal government step up with funding for safe supply in not only BC now, but also in Toronto.
1: Well, exactly. The the safe supplies was announced on, this whole project was announced on March the 29th, I think, in British Columbia. And it was money from the federal government for getting this done and, and doing this. And so the, the bottom line is this is not done because everyone thinks it's just a good idea. But in countries like Switzerland, it's been going on now for 15 years. And we found that people who can go to a doctor or clinic or whomever, get their supply, go home, they are back into the real world. They're t- retraining, they're getting jobs, they're living lives that, that, you know, that are meaningful and looking at a future, et cetera. And we see in some Scandinavian countries they are also doing it where they call it HAT, which is heroin-assisted therapy. And some of these people, the young people, are going back to school and they're they're going to university and they're beginning to live real lives. And I think the Supreme Court said it well when it was unanimous, unanimous about this whole issue with regard to safe injection sites when we started it. Section seven, I mean, you're a lawyer. Uh, section seven uh, of the charter, which says light, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, this is every, Human beings' right in this country, and we don't say, "Oh no, 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 no!" People who are using drugs don't have that right. People who are homeless don't have that right. People who have HIV/AIDS don't have that right. We are saying that that is the Supreme Court said that is the right of everyone to life, liberty, life, and security of the person. It's
0: it's funny you reference that uh, for me, I, and also interesting to speak to you about it, given your role in establishing Insight. But when I did my uh, master' of laws. I focus my thesis on Section 7 of the Charter, and I argue that if you look at the Supreme Court's decision in PHS Community Services, which is the Insight case that the same logic would apply to see the prohibition, the criminal prohibition against prostitution struck down. The same logic would apply to strike down the criminal prohibition on assisted dying. And the same logic would legalize cannabis. And we we ended up legalizing cannabis before the courts did, but or decriminalizing cannabis, I should say, is what I thought the courts would do. But we legalized before they got there. But certainly, we saw the other two pieces, criminal code legislation struck down by the courts on the same legal basis to say, we need to protect people's rights to security of the person, to, to life and to liberty. And government policy can't put those rights in jeopardy.
1: Right, same thing. that again, people who uh, practice the sex trade or work in the sex trade are people, human beings with the equal right to life, liberty, and security of the person. And we saw how, again, once more, British Columbia, I mean, we're ahead of the curve on everything, good and bad. We're just ahead of the curve in British <laughs> <laughs> Columbia.
0: Now, now, I say Beaches East York in Toronto is a small slice of BC. In fact, you know a funny story, Kevin Lamoureux, uh, at the end of the last parliament, he came up to me and he said, well, you know, there's this debate on the uh, the tanker ban in parliament. Uh, do you want to speak to it? And I was like, well, Kevin, why would I want to speak to that? And he goes, well, you're from BC. And I went, Kevin, just because I care about the environment, the opioid crisis and animal welfare doesn't mean I'm from BC. <laughs> <laughs> that
1: is so true. You know, people forget we... We're on the other side of the Rockies here, and they think that we're like a roots and berries province. But we are always ahead of the curve. And I think again, it was because of the Picton case, where young women or men in the sex trade were being killed by this man. And uh, and eventually, the police realized in British Columbia I and mean, in Vancouver. I would drive around with the police when we were looking at this issue, um, and they would stay, they would walk, drive past a young woman on the street, open broad daylight, well-lit, and they'd say, how are you doing there, Betty? And she'd say, I'm good, good, but you better go. I have a John who's coming. Because they realized that they came up with the idea of the Vancouver Police, that their duty is to protect everyone. And that included the women who worked on the street, because what happened is these women used to be picked up by patrol cars, and then they started going to darker and darker areas into little alleys, and and of course, that there the predators found them, you know, and the misogynists found them. So one of the things about that, again, is here it is. British Columbia opened that case up. The Supreme Court ruled very clearly on this. And so we, we need to look at look at this. So, I mean, I like to think that I'm not a lawyer, but I'm a charter. I'm a charter woman. I believe in the charter. It was one of the reasons I became a the board in the first place. And that I came to this country in the first place. Uh, because I saw this thing called the Charter of Rights and Fish and I thought, oh my goodness, that is such a, a real, a, a, a extraordinarily advanced piece of public policy. And I came here and I looked at it and then it, it applies to so many things. But I think here you are. So we're starting this announced by the British Columbia government with federal, some federal funding. And this is going to happen so that you, for instance, I mean, I don't need to know if you're using or not, but you can go to your doctor or your nurse practitioner, depending on where you live, if you live in a, an area where there are no family dogs, and you can go in and you say, look, hello, I have, a, I have, a, I have an illness. I have a problem. I'm, I'm using, I can't stop using. And you start to be Then, what is the good thing about it is that then as you go and you get your prescription and you go out there, the, the, the physician or the nurse will also be checking you out to see have you got other com- comorbidities, you have other illnesses, are you also getting you know, certain diseases, what is going on with you, how can I help to wean you off this, if possible. And work done in Switzerland and some of the other countries have shown that there is still a very tiny percentage of users who will never be able to get off it. Um, And because of the dopamine issue in the brain, etc. And then of course, there's a fellow named Julio Montana, Dr. Julio Montana, um, who created the whole universal testing for people with uh, with HIV in British Columbia. It's the only province that does universal testing and does universal treatment. um, Because there is a drug that if you give it to people, there is no viral load at all. Once you find out they're positive, you give them their first dose No viral load. So it's called treatment as prevention, in other words. And of course, in British Columbia, we also have PrEP that's being given by the government to all persons who are found positive. So, you know, there are all these things happening. We don't have to reinvent this wheel, you know, there's some good data.
0: It's almost too simple, though. When we have thousands of people die from a contaminated drug supply, you the doctor say well let's make sure that the drug supply isn't contaminated then
1: it's like if you get once again let's just go back to a simple of a chronic problem diabetes type one you go and we decided that we're not going to allow pharmacists and doctors to prescribe insulin so where do you get it because you have this illness you go down and you buy it from some guy on the street and if he contaminates insulin you're going to die from contaminated insulin This is the exact same thing that we're talking about here. This is, let us look at this as something to be treated as a public health problem and a chronic illness. And let's deal with it with the same way we would deal with any other chronic illness. And take the stigma away.
0: I think there's complementarity when you, I think you're right to point to Switzerland, I wonder then, so if someone who has been for whatever reason unable to access the the legal system that you would like to be put in place and they have then sourced it illegally still where they are there are obviously health issues that have led them down that path, it strikes me that the maybe the core policy would be the one that you are advocating for out of Switzerland, but that there is a complementary policy. Of decriminalization to say, if you have a a possession just for personal use, then we're still not going to treat it as a criminal justice issue. And so even if you've secured it illegally, we're we're going to divert you out of the criminal justice system and into the health system as best as we reasonably can. And almost, I introduced the bill before COVID-19 happened, but I, I introduced the bill to basically elevate the Vancouver policing model to become a national one, because it strikes me that there is a policing model that could work better than the one that we are, we are using elsewhere around the country?
1: Actually, I visited Switzerland uh, way back in, uh, maybe it was two, 2002. And we were looking at this issue and we went to Switzerland and we visited a couple of countries. And in Switzerland, the police, we traveled with the police in Switzerland and they said to us, you know, we saw people using and they would just pick them up and send them, take them to the clinic and they'd get registered at the clinic, right? And we said, well, why, you know, other countries aren't allowing this to happen? And they said, we're not looking for these guys. These guys have an illness. We're looking for the people who are exploiting their illness, who are taking advantage of their need and, you know, and and that's organized crime. And so we are now free not to pick up some guy out there who's using, but to go after the guys who are selling him and go after organized crime. And this is where the the justice part of it comes in. This is where the criminal part of it comes in. People who are exploiting and similarly with the issue of sex trade. People exploit women who are poor and who are having no other way of earning a living and working in the sex trade. They exploit them by getting them hooked onto, many of them onto onto drugs and then put them on the sex trade. Some of them don't. But I mean, then we make this a criminal act and these women are scared. And they go into darker and darker places and they get into trouble the way we see fentanyl being a problem, and I just think that I'm always trying to use evidence, and if British Columbia does this, and we can get some evidence out of it, and then we collect data.
0: Well, I can see the attack ads already. Liberals want heroin sold in every corner store. I've been accused of the same by conservatives that I otherwise like and and they issue press releases suggesting I want heroin sold on the street corner.
1: That's not what we're doing
0: here. Exactly which is why I think the evidence is so your point about just building out the evidence is so clear because in the end on drug policy we have seen time and time again conservative hysteria on this is undone by the evidence, and and ultimately the evidence wins out in the end. And so I think building the evidence is absolutely critical for the long-term success of sensible drug policy.
1: Well, I would like to suggest that you're right, that the conservatives, when they see the evidence, come along and understand the problem.
0: They won't, but hopefully more Canadians will.
1: Yeah, more Canadians will. And, I, and if you recall, for 10 years, they fought the whole Supreme Court decision, well, not the, before Insight, and then this. They, they dragged their feet on the Supreme Court decision until we came into power and decided that we were going to implement the Supreme Court decision with regards to injection sites. So there
0: you go. Speaking of conservatives, you you, uh, you may not remember this. You came to beaches East York, uh, I think, on the invitation of my predecessor, Maria Mina, and you came and you spoke at a, at a pub, and you got asked the question is there anything in the Harper years that you thought that they did well? And you gave a very thoughtful answer, I thought, to point to the parliamentary budget office to say that is actually a strong institution and it was an important measure of accountability that the conservatives brought in, and so credit where it's due. But I, I, I wonder, in your political career and your advocacy, could you point to one or two things that you would say, I'm especially proud of this and, and this is a legacy that I left, whether it's your work or the work of the liberal government more broadly?
1: Well, uh, t- I don't even have to think about that. The one that I am most proud of is, again, under the Charter, the, the ability for same-sex couples, for the LGBTQ2 plus community to be treated as Canadian citizens and as Canadians, no matter where they are, and that we're spreading this globally. We also, I started that in Corrections Era, and I am proud to say that that's the thing I am most proud of, that there were no second-class Canadians because of their uh, sexual orientation or their sexual identity. So I I know that. I'm very proud of that. But the other thing I'm very proud of is the Safe Injection site, the work we did. The work we did on the Naomi Project and the Salome Project, which were looking again at safe drug supply even then. And we had started it with Clinton being the United States president and Crutcheon being the... Canadian um, Prime Minister. And they we had agreed that, that across the border, six universities would do this work. And they were going to be Johns Hopkins and University of Toronto. They were going to be, I think it was University of Winnipeg, and I can't remember who across the border, and UBC, University of British Columbia, and University of Washington. And uh, we were going to do this this Naomi Salome project, uh, which is to take people who were resistant to methadone and who were at high risk, and you know, try this particular safe supply with them. And then George Bush came in, uh, in halfway in between this, and before we could get it all cemented, he cancelled it. I remember going down and talking to his drug czar as a minister, and having her tell me, "No, no, 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 no. This is a moral issue. This is something we will not allow people to use drugs and stuff like that." And you know, because I wanted to make sure that we could continue with it two. So we eventually ended up. And the only people who decided to continue with the work was once again, the University of British Columbia continued with it and we did these projects that showed us what could happen if you had a safe supply. Um, and again, you know, this is, these are the important things that I'm proud of that we need to look at and we need to do. And of course, the fact that everyone is talking about something that uh, we championed uh, in the 90s uh, internationally and that was the whole idea of intersectionality. Uh, with regard to the gender. It wasn't just equality between men and women. It was that some women are less equal than others and some men are less equal than others. And let's look at all of the other things that drive inequality, race and language and culture and, and ethnicity.
0: And sometimes drug policies. I mean, you just mentioned America's First Drug czar. I, I will never forget reading this, that America's First Drug czar said, reefer makes darkies think they're the same as white men. I, and I thought holy, our history of drug policy is so racist.
1: But not only that, the czar I spoke to when I went across under George Bush was, a, was a, a, a a public health physician. She was Black, and she was still adamant, um, and it was all for her, a moral issue. And, you know, as a physician, I learned, one of the first things I learned as a physician is that I do not judge my patients by anything, their race, their color, their use of substances, their Poverty, their socioeconomics—I don't judge them by that. I just try to make sure that I am there to a do no harm and b to consider their well-being and to make it happen. So I don't have this kind of. Even though I was brought up a very strict Catholic girl, and I and I was going to be a nun when I was fifteen. <laughs> I
0: mean, I'm, How do you fry the nun?
1: Most people won't believe this about me. I know. Um, and then, you know, I, I, and then I suddenly suddenly started to look things through the eye of a phys- physician. And, and I learned then that health is not the absence of disease. Health is a multi-pronged, multifactorial thing. Social economic status determines our health.
0: We need to talk about that more, I think. I think we need to talk about poverty reduction and the social determinants of health. And w- that needs to be spoken in the House of Commons and outside the House of Commons by leaders uh, far more than, than we currently do. Yeah.
1: Of course we do. But I think maybe, you know, in every bad thing, I've noticed this actually, even practicing medicine all the years I did, is that sometimes a thing that is bad or a thing that is tragic or a thing that makes us, uh, that harms us in some way, actually never is always just harmful. Out of it comes something that opens our eyes and helps us to understand better and to, to move in a totally different direction. And maybe, COVID-19 will do just that.
0: We, you mentioned an American president that un, undid a lot of good things on the, the file that you were working on. Obviously, this American president undoing a lot of different things that are, that are good and, and causing a lot of harm. And some people point to senility, and then you look at Joe Biden. And I look at your career and your advocacy in Parliament. I listened to you speak on C-37 in the last Parliament. I listened to you speak on, on a number of different issues. And how are you still doing this at such a high level? And do, you, and do you plan to continue doing this? I mean, I just think it's, what a testament to your work in the end.
1: Well, I think first and foremost, we talk about race and we talk about ethnicity and gender and indigenous status and all that as reasons for discrimination. I think we have to be very careful that we don't discriminate against people because of their age. Uh, and you use a good example of Biden and, 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 um, and Bernie Sanders. But I think if you look at people, I mean, uh, Gola Mayer was a remarkable woman and she was well into her 80s when she was still doing what she was doing. I think that I am lucky for starters, uh, my genetics are pretty good, Um, but I have always let my life be fueled by curiosity, by wondering what's around the next corner. What's going to be the next challenge? Can I help in finding out what is creating the challenge and how we can find solutions to it and that's always made me kind of excited and pumped throughout my life on everything i did and also deciding what i'm going to do next i've never let never made those long-term decisions i just let the i follow the path that i see in front of me and if it it excites me and i think that there are windmills to tilt at in that little pathway i will go down
0: well i keep tilting at windmills i i always think of you as the the tina turner of canadian politics so i hope you stay in it for as long as you want (laughs)
1: thank you very much i wish i could sing like her though
0: (laughs) a big thank you to hetty fry for joining me on uncommons and for all of her important advocacy over years decades of public service remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes including with my conservative colleague michael chong and professors shoshana zuboff and Taylor Owen.